0: turning the Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 7. I think someone said Genesis. We will be in Genesis again when I come back. And Genesis 24, the longest chapter in the Bible. Um, and there's something, we're very beautiful there about the faith of Rebecca. And what an example, the faith of Rebecca in Genesis 24. We'll come back to that. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 7 as a standalone. 1, chapter, one, 1 Samuel 7 in your Bible. is the briefest background ever because we haven't been... In it recently, but in chapter four, the Philistines have defeated the Israelites, and the Israelites bring the Ark into battle, and they presume upon the Lord, but they're defeated again, and the Ark is captured. And then in 1 Samuel 5, the Ark, far from being vanquished, is placed in the temple of Dagon. Their false god is smashed to pieces before the ark. And then as chapter 6 comes. With the great disaster befalling the Philistines, they seek a way to get rid of the ark. And by way of bovine help, the ark returns to Israel. But once there again, the Israelites, some of the Israelites are killed if they look on the ark. We come to 1 Samuel 7, that's the briefest background ever. And have the Israelites learnt the lesson? What, Samuel, what will Samuel do as he judges Israel? So follow along if you have your Bibles and I'll pray before we read God's word as it is indeed sacred ground. Would you pray, bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every word is living. Every word comes through your hand. The Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our Saviour Jesus in whose name I pray. Amen. So then 1 Samuel in chapter 7 and verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherahoth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherahoth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter again the territory of Israel and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the day of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year after year to Bethel, Gilgal and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. There is no doubt that compared to almost any other time, any other place in history, we live lives that are healthier, more comfortable, and much more prosperous. The fact, with the fact that we get so wound up about the supply chain. Says that we live in a, we, the first world issue, as they call it, isn't it? We, we, get, you know, we lose our marbles very, very quickly. And even when we can't buy as much sparkling water as I would want in Sainsbury's, and there may, only, there may only be enough presents for 15 presents each instead of the 25 at Christmas, and we may have to occasionally queue to buy caviar and donuts. I've never queued to buy caviar. And by, by many measures, life is much easier. Than it used to be. Even when I was growing up, life is a lot easier and there's a lot more we take for granted today. But it's much more complicated as well. It's much more complicated. It's much more confused. It's much more evil. Abortion is commonly discussed as casually as where to go out for a meal. And what God says is right is wrong. And what God says is right is dangerous. And subversive. Children are told the most outrageous, outrageous lies about sex and gender by supposedly grown up people. But we are prosperous, oh yes, we are. And sometimes if you look back and you hear the, the reformers or the great heroes of the faith, and you see how much they wrote, how much they fill up our wardrobe um, ward- I not wasn't saying wardrobes, I meant bookshelves, you know what I mean. But they wrote more, I've got more books than I'll probably ever have time to read, even if I read from now until glory. And you think, well, how did they do that? How did they do that? They didn't have MacBooks. They didn't have electric lights. They had candles. <laughs> and they had maybe a quill. How did they accomplish so much? That was extraordinary, and it was by the Lord's grace. But they also didn't have insurance forms to fill out and they didn't have to worry about emissions for the car and they didn't have to fill out the forms for their taxes and the paperwork and regulations and there are so many specialists and no person, however talented or generous or genius they are, can know how to fix everything, mechanical, electrical, digital. So. We all need specialists to help us. And any time there's paperwork and bureaucracy and red tape and regulations, it is a lot. It is a lot just to live your life. It is a lot just to live your life. It's a very complicated world we live in. It takes a lot of energy and effort. It takes bean counters. I happen to be a bit of a bean counter myself. But it takes bean counters as well as everyone else to, to live life in a world that's just living normally that the Christian life also can sometimes appear to be more complicated. If you think about it, everyone has a book, everyone's written a book. I haven't yet. Or there's a programme or a scheme. And it's, it's, it's conceived that if you have this expertise and people expect of you, not only that you try and pray and make it through your day and not make shipwreck of your faith but that we suddenly have to play a key role in the transformation of society and the changing of the world. And it can feel that if you're going to be a successful Christian in a successful church, it would really help if you're off-the-charts extrovert, as well as being introverted at times, and that you're highly disciplined and you're amazing at time management. Everyone's laughing at me, especially at the back. And if only you could find 35 hours in your day instead of 24 you could get through... You know, I could you know, Actually, not only I could leave the church, but you could get everyone out of the mess that lockdown has left us in. Thankfully, the biblical approach to the Christian life is much simpler. And the biblical approach to Christian living is far simpler, I believe, than many of us realise. I said simpler, not easier. But part of being simpler is that it's harder on a heart level, but it's more manageable on your time. Repent, believe, obey. So the Bible says, repent, believe, obey. And to the degree that we understand that sequence, repent, believe, obey, it seems to me that in the church and in our lives, most of us put 80% on that emphasis on believe, we do. Eighty percent we say believe, nineteen on obey, if you're like, lucky, and one percent on repentance. But repentance is vital to the Christian life. Repentance is absolutely vital to Christian discipleship. And yet I think it blights many churches, and it's the sin of churches that people are unwilling to repent. And maybe one of the reasons that our Christian lives get so complicated is we're trying to manufacture a certain kind of life and it's not really growing out of the humble soul of a repentant heart that is just cast on God for his mercy. Think about it. When did you last repent? I'm not talking generally, specifically of a specific sin. When did you last repent specifically of a specific sin? And if it has been a long time, it isn't because you haven't sinned against the Lord or another person. We cannot get anywhere we need to go in our Christian lives unless we start with repentance. And I wonder, as we deplore and we're discouraged around the church around us, is because we have lost how to repent. This episode of the life of Israel in 1 Samuel 7 shows us the beauty and the simplicity of repentance. And that's the first thing that they must do. If they find the Lord's favour again and walk in his ways. The story of Samuel is things haven't gone well for Israel. Things have gone well for Samuel. He's going to judge Israel. But for Israel as a whole, Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, things weren't going well. They lost to the Philistines twice. They lost the ark when the ark comes back, no thanks to them. Some men look at it and they're killed. Nothing seems to be going right for Israel. And finally, in chapter 7, something goes massively right. At what, and what went right? They repented. It's amazing how simple the biblical pattern of renewal is. You think, what would it take in our church? What would it take in our town? What would it take in our nation to experience great renewal? We often pray for it. Times of refreshing from the Lord. There are many different ways. We'll use people writing books and people doing church ministries and people in their own sphere of influence. It will. But at the heart, it is simple. What did it mean in John the Baptist day when people came to him and said, tell us what to do. Repent. What did Jesus say? Repent. What was the message at Pentecost? Repent. Sometimes it is repent and believe. Sometimes it is believe because they're two sides of the same coin. It's a turning from sin and a turning to Christ. Repent and believe. And we see this pattern throughout the whole of the Bible. So often there's a period of great strength in the nation of Israel. And then with this strength, you think of some of the kings... And he was marvellously helped. And he was marvellously helped. Until they became strong. And when they were strong. It led to stagnation and apathy. Disobedience and downfall. Desperation. And sometimes exile. And what was the path back? It's always been the same. Repentance. God's rescue. God's salvation. And God makes his people strong again. That's the pattern Throughout the Bible. That's the pattern throughout church history. Moments of great triumph. And strength occur. When there is a humility of heart. To cast ourselves on the Lord. To seek salvation and grace for our sins. And then as the church does that. There are different periods when they grow strong. So the church is fledgling and weak. They sought the Lord. And then Constantine came. was a famous conversion. And then the Christianity became. From a persecuted minority. To the official religion of the empire. And then over time. As the church accrued wealth. Prosperity and influence. Then you had the proliferation of. Various monastic movements. That said the the church had grown corrupt and worldly. And then those. Monastic movements became wealthy, influential, and powerful. So another movement would come along and say, those guys have gotten corrupt and too strong. They aren't, and they're no longer humble. Then the Reformation came. The Reformation of theology, but also a Reformation of the heart. Because the church had become worldly. And time and time we see this pattern in revivals, in awakenings. And it's no coincidence that it coincides here with the establishment of Samuel's leadership over Israel. Look at the passage and look at the bookends. First two verses, Samuel said to the house of Israel, he exercises leadership, he tells them what to do. If you're serious about returning to the Lord, you have to turn away from your idols. And in the last three verses of the chapter, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And it speaks of his ministry and the peace that they had while Samuel judged Israel. And oftentimes in church history, in times of renewal, there's strong preaching, strong leadership. We see it here with Samuel as he leads the people in repentance. So what what did this repentance look like for Israel? What might it look like for you and me? Individually, maybe in your family, maybe for us. Corporately. From this passage I see repentance in four steps. It isn't rigid, so you always have these four steps, or it happens in this order. But I believe we draw from here a good biblical pattern of repentance. Contrition, confession, turning and trusting. Contrition, confession, turning and trusting. First of all, contrition. 1 Samuel 7 verse 2 it says, the day before we the verse before we read, from the day that the ark was lodged at some place, Kiriath of Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The long time was twenty years, which is a biblical number for a generation. It took a generation for Israel to come to their senses and say, We need to lament our sins. The Hebrew word is Nahar which is only used three times in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 7 verse 2, lamented, Ezekiel 32 and Micah 2. It said that all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They weren't just wailing for their failures, they were lamenting after the Lord. You see, there is an eternal difference between regret and repentance. You don't need the work of the Holy Spirit to regret. We all feel regret usually when there are bad consequences from our bad decisions, and you regret. We feel regret for bad things and bad decisions and bad consequences. This is not regret, this is lamenting after the Lord. That word Nehar is a strong word. In Ezekiel, it's wail. In Micah, it is moan. Lament, wail, moan. This wasn't a begrudging sort of repentance. There was a genuine moaning and wailing from the heart. There was a desperation about it. They had sinned before God. They were not worthy. And they were cast on God for his mercy. It is the heart. Have you ever cried out, I am lost, I'm a wreck? I can't go on like this anymore. Their hearts were contrite. Their hearts were pulverised. Have you ever seen with people, or maybe in your own life, people get to the precipice of re- repentance, and they're almost almost there, and then they pull back. Their lives are a mess, and they see they're running to the same dead end time and time again. It's the same bad habits time and time again and because the world tells you you, you you aren't a sinner you're just the way you are because your parents were messed up it's a lie my friend you're a sinner and you need mercy from above and people are running with the same bad habits to the same dead end and they almost come with a heart contrition to repent but they can't do it anymore they can't go on And they admit their sin before the Lord and before others. And they pull back. Your life is uncomfortable. You've made a mess of everything. You're just about to dive into repentance. And then you have a day where you feel slightly better. You kind of manage a bit better. And then you start to build confidence and say, I can manage this. I was half-heartedly watching something on a show on the TV the other day. And somebody was saying... You know, somebody was saying, I'm going to go to the police and fess up. And the other guy was saying, don't do that. Don't do that. You might feel bad now, but in 10 days you'll feel a little bit better. And in 10 weeks you'll feel a little bit better. And after a year you would have forgotten all about it. The way of the world. Suppress it. You can manage it. A better day tomorrow. The sun will shine and kiss it. They pull back from genuine repentance. My dear friend, repentance always begins with contrition, a lament, a moan, a wail from the bottom of our hearts that I'm a sinner and I need mercy. Secondly, confession. Verse 5, then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. There is power in praying for people when it comes to their sins. And we should be before the Lord that we are able to pray with people when they come and ask us to pray for them. There are laws in this country which are threatening to make it illegal to pray with people for certain sins. Sometimes we need to hear others praying for us. We need others to confirm forgiveness for us. Samuel gathers them. He prays for them. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. Fasting indicates many things in the Bible, but at its heart, fasting is a cry, I want you, Lord, I need your mercy, I want your forgiveness more than I want food this day. That's where fasting came from at heart. Lord, I need you, I need your mercy More than I need food today. It's an indication that they are broken. That they are lamenting. And as an expression of that desire and confession. They fast. They plainly admit their fault. We've sinned against the Lord. Plain, simple language. We would do well to use this plain, simple language. We have sinned against the Lord. There's a reason Why people do not like the word sin. It's one of those things where I think of it doesn't really matter whether people like it or not, because it's true. They don't like to be thought or called sinners because it still carries a weight or a sting. Nobody has a problem. Have you noticed this? Admitting, I could have done a bit better. I made a mistake. I could be a better person. There are some things in my life I need to work on. (laughs) Really? Or put in a more generic passive sense. Yeah, mistakes were made. I regret the decision. I apologise for any offence that you have taken. That, by the way, is not an apology at all. If you apologise for the offence somebody's taken, that's no apology at all. I regret that I've hurt others and let down many people. Now, they can be appropriate statements at times and places, but it's not a confession of sin. Neither do they just admit regret. They don't just indicate bad circumstances. This is what's gone wrong with my life. It's a statement of vertical offence, who we have sinned against the Lord. It's not just a mistake. It's not just a growth edge. It's not just a learning curve. It is not just an area for improvement. It's not just one thing that I could have done better in my life. It is sin. It is transgression. It is iniquity against the God of the universe. The Westminster Confession says, Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavour to repent of his particular sins particularly. To repent of particular sins particularly. Not just Lord This past week, I could have done things a bit better. No particular sins confessed particularly. There is a time for private and public confession, and we must be wise about this. The general rule of thumb is public repentance as wide as those who have been sinned against. We're not talking about our private lives being confessed in front of everybody, but when we sin against others, we must make known not just our sin before God but when they're of a notorious character or known publicly, let our repentance be as well known as our sin. So often we think it's only between us and God and that is true in many occasions. But confession is both private and sometimes public. And here in Israel, it is very much public because as a nation, they had sinned against the Lord and they stated as much. So contrition, Confession and turning. Go back up to verse three and four, and Samuel is saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, and put away the foreign gods and the Ashrahotha from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. Talk is cheap. Repentance must be more than a feeling. No, it takes the work of God in our hearts to change us. Repentance may start with that but true repentance is more than feeling bad about your sin samuel says if you're going to return to the lord you must turn away from the false gods and turn to the true god turn from turn to this repentance isn't easy but it's not complicated it is simple put off those gods go to the true God. turning means you don't just stop out lamentation and wailing. I'm not sure if you ever heard wailing. Um, the f- first funeral I took in Vienna was of a dear, dear sister. I loved her very, very much, from Lebanon. And uh, nothing quite prepared me apart from it was in Vienna, but nothing quite prepared me for the wailing at the grave. The, the absolute wailing, which is traditional in Lebanon at a funeral and in, and in the near Middle East. The wailing. It actually was, was gut-wrenching. It got straight to my heart. It tore your the heartstrings. Wailing. God isn't interested that we just lie around and cry about our sin and we never change. Repentance wouldn't have been real repentance if they hadn't have turned. If they just stopped at the wailing bit and not turned It would have been pointless. God isn't interested in you moping around every day. He wanted them to turn, to change. There's an illustration of this in Joshua 7, where Israel goes out to fight against the city of Ai after their great victory at Jericho. But the people of Israel, Joshua 7 tells us, broke faith in regard to the devoted things. So Achan among them had stolen some of the things. They didn't know this at first. So they lost a little eye after the great victory of Jericho. And then Joshua 7 verse 6 tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Would that we would have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? It is a loud lamentation, which is good. There is contrition for sin. Joshua and the elders say this is sin. And in verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed, transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy The devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. God doesn't want to leave us in a perpetual state of groaning. Sometimes He said, These are devoted things. Make it right. Take care of the sin. Turn from it. Turn to me and find favour again. God doesn't want a perpetual state of moaning for our sins. He says, you felt the blow, get up, deal with it and go. We need to hear that because so often I think it's felt repentance, it's terrible, I'm nothing I'm horrible, I cannot do anything good. <coughs> My dear father used to say every day, woe is me, for I am undone before the mirror. And then when he moved house once, he said to the estate agent, when the estate agent said, Why are you moving house? He says, Because I'm working through Romans 7. I think it was eh, not quite sure it was understood what was what he was saying, but it says, Stop it, get up, Joshua. I don't want you to turn in your sword. I want you to get back into the battle. I want you to make this right. I want you to turn from your sin. Because we can be paralysed in a lament that seems holy, but is absolutely selfish. Because it can leave you, if it leaves you self-absorbed. And we never change from moaning to moving. We never get up. We never stop wallowing. We don't, I think some people don't want things to get better so that they can always come and say how bad everything is. Yes, well, things are bad, but then you repent and you move on. Yet there's work to do. There's work to do for the kingdom. Contrition, confession, and a turning. I think many times we stop at the first two. The third one's just as vital. And finally, trusting. We see when the Philistines in verse 10, the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah, they summoned their men for battle. It's possible that the Philistines had prohibited sacred assemblies. We know people who prohibit sacred assemblies. They gathered together for a religious purpose and the Philistines probably said, we don't want you to do that. And we know that if you're gathering for any purpose (laughs) it could be the Coming together of troops. So the Philistines react and they assemble for battle. This is no time for presumption on the part of the Lord's people. They do not say we know what to do, bring in the ark. No, this time out of a spirit of fear of the Lord and humility. The people of Israel, verse 8, said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. There's no presumption, they're afraid of the Philistines, they fear the Lord, they offer a burnt sacrifice and the Lord responds. He sends a mighty sound, thunders with a mighty sound. Was it thunder? Was it an earthquake? Well, whatever it was, it frightened the Philistines and the Lord rescues the Israelites as they fight. And we have a raising of another Ebenezer in verse 12. Then Samuel took the stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Presumption, apathy, disobedience led to Ichabod. The glory had departed. Now repentance and a turning and an obedience had led to Ebenezer. And as they trust in the Lord and they call out to the Lord alone for their salvation. The Philistines are subdued. The cities are restored. And in verse 14 there is a peace between Israel and some of the other Canaanite people, the Amorites. And don't miss the subtle message here in the text. Where did they first lose the ark? 1 Samuel 4 verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And 1 Samuel 5 verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. There was a, an original city called Ebenezer. It's called EbenHazar. It's the stone of Hail. The ark had been captured. They lost the ark at Ebenezer. And where did the Israelites defeat the Philistines? Chapter 7, verse 12. A new place with an old name, another Ebenezer. And I think we're meant to hold in contrast. What is the difference between the loss at the first Ebenezer and the great victory at the next Ebenezer? It's the same name, it's the same spiritual word. And I think God wants us to see that the difference is not found. And ultimately the rituals that they will perform, in the spiritual words that they may say, but in repentance. And the difference between the first and second Ebenezer is repentance. And that means that God gives, that doesn't mean that God gives us what we want when we're sorry for our sins, but it does mean, my friend, there are so many blessings that we experience only on the other side of, Of real contrition and confession. On the other side of turning and trusting. I think sometimes what really affects Christians and looking good Christians as well is a lack of repentance and a hard unforgiveness. And the two always go together. The name was the same, Ebenezer, but the heart was different. God is so much more interested in what we sound like or what we look like. He wants much more than just ritual observance. He's looking for a heart that would acknowledge sin and look to him as the only saviour. What is missing, I think, is a heart of repentance. Samuel will be judged and very quickly the people will ask for a king and Saul will be chosen and he's not the right king and Saul's kingdom will give way to David, and David was the great king of the Old Testament, the one who would make a way for the Messiah. And David, it says in the Book of Acts, was a man after God's own heart. Have you ever thought about what made David so great? Because you know, sometimes you think about you know the heroes of the Bible. Moses, well, he killed somebody. David, well, we all know what he did with Bathsheba. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, we think of these, think of those things, but what, what made David so great? Why did all of God's people look back and think so much of King David? When there was so much that King David had committed adultery, he had committed murder, he had lied and covered it up, he had a messed up family. Why wasn't that David's reputation? Why wasn't, when everyone said about David, The adulterer. Because David, a man after God's own heart, was great because he was willing to overlook the sins of others but never unwilling to look over his own sin. Have you ever seen this? How often David was extraordinarily generous to those who sinned against him, eager to give his enemies a second chance. Twice when his friends advised him to strike down the enemy. David spared Saul's life. Saul opposed him. David didn't rejoice at his death. He wept for the king. He welcomed Abner when he defected from the phony king Ishbosheth. He mourned for him when Joab struck him down. David was really kind to Mephibosheth. He was patient. Remember when that rabble rouser Shimei was screaming at him? He was patient. David pardoned those who rebelled against him when his son Absalom led the coup. And time after time, David showed himself, unlike the sons of Zerua, who were eager to settle scores, seek revenge, hold grudges. David knew how to forgive. Do you know how to forgive? I know many Christians who call themselves Christians who don't. Do you know how to forgive? More than anyone before Jesus, David loved his enemies. He loved his enemies. He was willing to welcome rebels back into the fold. But his kind-hearted attitude toward his enemies did not mean a soft-hearted attitude to his own sin. That's many times how it works. The people who are soft with other people's sins are soft to their own sins, because it's part of their personality. And the people who are really, really, really hard on their own sins, are really, 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 really hard on other people, because that's just their personality. And the worst of all is, you're really, really, really hard on other people, and soft on yourself. But this was David's greatness. As much as he sinned, he was never unwilling to own up to his sin. And I believe that's why David is great. I cannot find a single instance where David was rebuked for his failings when he didn't own up and repent and welcome the rebuke. Nathan confronted David after his adultery and David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Joab sent the woman of Tekoa to change David's mind about Absalom. And he listened to the woman in disguise and Joab rebuked David because David was more loving to his treacherous son than his loyal servants. And David did what Joab told him to do. And after his census, David's heart was struck and said, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. David knew how to forgive and how to repent. He never blamed others for his mistakes. He didn't make excuses with his family history or how busy he was at work or the demands of leadership. And I was just having a bad day. And what was she doing bathing there? He didn't use passive language. He didn't refer to his sin in euphemistic terms. He confessed against you, you only, have I sinned. And even when people were beneath their station and in their office showed to David his sin, he candidly and clearly took responsibility for it. He dealt more kindly with the sins of his enemies than he did with his own sins. Oh, my friends... How often we see the opposite. How often we see the opposite. But it's something for each of us to consider. What are you more gracious toward? What are you more likely to overlook? You know, overlook. When somebody hurts you, you go for them. You really do go for them. You're not willing to let anyone get away with anything. But you give yourself carte blanche. The sins of others against you or your own sins before the Lord. David was a man after God's own heart because he was quick to forgive the sins of others. And he was willing to see sin in his own heart. I can't impress on you enough how vital that is. What better example of God could there be except God, of course, does not have sin in himself. But God's son Great David's greater son became sin, the one who knew no sin. God doesn't just welcome his enemies in, he dies for his enemies. Always eager to show mercy, always willing to give traitors a second chance. God is never soft on sin. That's not what the cross is about. He exposes sin, he calls on us to turn from it, to put it to death. God showed his condensation not because he needed to be rebuked. He never sinned, but by humbling himself to take on human flesh and die, even the shameful death on the cross. David was great, but not as great as his greatest son. Friends, there is mercy for your sin here this morning, but you must embrace God's mercy in showing you your sin. Maybe there's someone here that God is shining a light or will do by his spirit this week, shine a light. May you do it in my heart, in your heart, for any blind spots to shine a light, to say you've been missing it, you've been dupliticus, you've been self-righteous, you've been ignorant, you've been blind, you've been fooling yourself because you have the name Ebenezer and you have the same spiritual trappings, but you're not sorry for your sin. Or if you think you're sorry, you haven't turned from your sin. So the message from the Bible, from the text this morning is confess your sin, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Repent, believe and obey. And may the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.